All right, so last week, as I just said, we kicked off this three-part series called Don't Worry, Be Happy. In that message last week, we began to deal with this whole problem, this whole issue of anxiety, and we discussed you know, several of those stress relievers um, that people use to deal with anxiety. As I said last week, even though some of those stress relievers are great, the reality is they're only temporary. If we want long-lasting relief from anxiety, what we gotta do is we gotta learn to apply Paul's words in verses six and seven. Okay, so by way of quick review, if you guys could look at your Bibles at Philippians chapter four and verses six and seven. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here it is. And the peace of God. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your remedy for anxiety in those three words. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we want to stop worrying so much, well, if we do our part, God's gonna do his part. If we do our part in verse six, God's gonna do his part in verse seven. If we engage in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving to the Lord, he's gonna give us his peace. In other words, if we engage in what I'm gonna to call today proper prayer, if we engage in proper prayer, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Or said another way, as we enjoy, right, this rich fellowship between a father and his adopted sons and daughters, as we enjoy this rich fellowship with God, God's peace, listen to this, pushes the anxiety away. That was verses six and seven last week. Today, verse eight, and so right now, if you're looking at Philippians chapter four, verse eight, can you say amen? amen. Okay, so rich, so helpful. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, can you guys shout out the word think? Go ahead. Think. Think, think about these things. In the context of writing about anxiety, the Apostle Paul encourages his readers to pay attention to their thought life. In other words, he wants us to think about what we think about. All right, so if we wanna overcome anxiety, we saw last week that we've got to be committed to this thing called proper prayer. But listen, in addition to that, we also need to be committed to proper thinking. Proper prayer, verses six and seven. Proper thinking, verse eight. Whether we realize it or not, both of those things are absolutely essential for our peace. All right, so today we're gonna to talk about proper thinking. 
Have you guys ever seen somebody who's kind of staring off into space in deep thought? Right? And so they're there and they're just like, and you say, what in the world are you thinking about? And what do they invariably say? Yeah, nothing. Now, whenever someone um, says that they're not thinking of anything, you know they're lying <laughs> because we're always thinking about something. Ladies and gentlemen, from the time that we wake up in the morning until the time we fall asleep at night, our minds are filled with all these thoughts, all of these thoughts, many thoughts are passing through our minds. Even after we go to sleep, our minds still remain active um, and we usually dream the night away. Now, I'm not an expert on dreams. I have no idea how many dreams the average person has each night. I don't really even care. All I know is that my dreams are weird. You know, I don't like talking about my dreams. It's like the most irrational, crazy stuff you'd ever imagine. And so I'm not into dreams. But I do wanna talk to you today about our, our thinking uh, during the day. An article in Newsweek magazine from 2020 says that the average person has in excess of 6,000 thoughts per day. I think the number was 6,200 from an article, Newsweek Magazine, 2020, uh, July of 2020. Um, and by the way, I, I did some more research and some websites have the number um, even more. Okay, so even if it is just 6,200 or so thoughts per day, that is a lot of thoughts. So doesn't it make sense that we should stop and think about what we're thinking about? And that leads us to your our next point, and that is that as Christians, we must learn to control our thoughts. Now, the fact of the matter is, in verse eight, the Apostle Paul gives us a list of eight positive traits. He gives us these eight positive traits, and then at the end of the verse, he says, think about these things. Now, the Apostle Paul would not have said, think about these things if we were not able to think about these things. In other words, we shouldn't say, I can't control my thoughts. You know, they just run rampant through my brain. I have no control over the topic that you're talking about uh, this morning, Pastor Mike. Well, here's the reality. Most people within the sound of my voice can, in fact, control their thinking. Now, I understand that some people, based on past traumatic events that they've experienced and how they've processed those past traumatic events that they've experienced, I understand that some people uh, encounter obsessive thoughts, obsessive thoughts that bombard their thinking um, at times, and it's really a very unpleasant experience that you might have. Now listen, if I'm talking to you, if you uh, at times feel overwhelmed with obsessive thoughts, please hear this. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There's hope in Jesus Christ. Listen. I understand that sometimes things can get pretty dark up here. Don't allow the darkness uh, to cause you to slip away at all. There's hope. Jesus Christ said, I'm the light of the world. Let his light 
illuminate your thoughts. Let his light illuminate your mind. Um, I don't know who I'm talking uh, talking to this morning, but if, if I'm describing things that you're experiencing with obsessive thinking, my encouragement to you is get the professional help that you need from a qualified Christian counselor or therapist, someone who's gonna point you, yes, to the Lord and yes, to his word, but as well um, uh, as pointing you to the Lord and to his word, they're also gonna give you a helpful strategy along with some helpful tools to help you maintain a sound mind. Listen, there's hope in Jesus Christ and with the right help, you can get to the place where you'll have so much better control over your thought life. Now, for all of us, unless we learn to replace harmful thoughts with helpful thoughts, unless we learn to replace lies with truth, we are not going to overcome anxiety and worry in our lives. This is why, you know, we're kind of pausing, pumping the brakes, and we're just talking about one verse today. This is as practical as the Bible gets today. We all think a lot during the day. Um, All of us, if we're honest, um, are at least tempted to worry. And so what we gotta do is we gotta understand the fact that until we get to the place where we are regularly replacing harmful thoughts with helpful thoughts, regularly replacing lies with the truth. If we're not doing that, we're not gonna overcome worry. This makes sense, right? Because, and you can answer out loud, where does worry take place? Right here. One of my favorite authors of all time, who's with the Lord right now in heaven, Warren Wearsby, he said this. He said, wrong thinking leads to wrong feeling, and before long, the mind and the heart are pulled apart, and we are strangled by worry. Strangled by worry. How many of you guys believe that our Father in heaven who loves us has a better plan for our lives than to allow his kids to be strangled by worry? Right, absolutely, but here's the thing. Um, we can fulfill his plan, but we've got to think properly. We've got to develop this mental discipline in our lives, and that does take work. Now, when we're talking about proper thinking, we have to address the topic of spiritual warfare. Because for the Christian, spiritual warfare, right, primarily takes place right here in our minds. And so, Let's um, think about spiritual warfare. Let's start with the Apostle Paul. He said this to the church at Ephesus. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, look at this, and some of you are new to the Bibles, it may freak you out a little bit. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you made a decision, whenever that was in your past life, when you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you signed on a dotted line to go to war. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. Um, Pastor Emeritus, um, former Vietnam vet, former Green Beret, Stu Weber. 
he said this, know it or not, like it or not, you and I are in a war and we need to begin living as if we were in a battle for our lives because in fact we are. And so ladies and gentlemen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in a fight. I'm not talking about a physical fight against a physical enemy. We're talking about a spiritual fight against a spiritual enemy who's very real. We're not talking about a physical fight on a physical battlefield. We're talking about a spiritual fight on a spiritual battle. And somebody says, well, where does this spiritual battlefield, where is it? Right here in our minds. The Apostle Paul said this now to the church at Corinth. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. I, I, I was um, studying this week, and that word divine just jumped off the page. Have you guys ever been reading the Bible and something jumps off the page at you? And I've never really seen it that way before, but it was kind of like the Lord was reminding me, uh, Mike, it's not your power, it's my power. <laughs> divine power to do what with? To destroy strongholds. Paul goes on to say we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And here's that classic uh, part of the verse that most of you have memorized. And we take captive, or we take every thought captive to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, the battle that we fight takes right takes place right here, right between our ears, right in our minds, right, as we destroy mental strongholds, as we cast down mental arguments, and as we engage in this discipline with the help of the Holy Spirit, right, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, I do want to give you two principles regarding spiritual warfare. First of all, you need to know this that Satan may believe he will eventually win, but his doom is sure. So what are we doing this morning? What we're doing is we're talking about overcoming anxiety. If we're gonna overcome anxiety, we have to engage in proper praying, verses six and seven, but also proper thinking in verse eight. As we're thinking about what we're thinking about, we realize that there's a warfare going on as we live in a fallen world waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. The warfare primarily takes place in our mind. We're talking about spiritual warfare now. We have a very real enemy, but here's what you need to know. Your enemy is a defeated enemy. His doom is sure. Because I say that, I'm emphasizing that because too many Christians have gotten off into wrong teaching about spiritual warfare and they're making too big of a deal about Satan. All right, he may believe he will eventually win. It's very possible that Lucifer, by the way, God cannot, would not create something evil. God did not create something evil. God created Lucifer, a perfect angel, but he gives every created being, angels or human beings, the gift of free will, and then Lucifer made the choice to go south, okay? And so Lucifer, very possibly, was blinded by pride, and that's why he attempted a coup against the Lord. I mean, why else would a creature think that he could successfully rebel against the creator? 
But even though he thought he could win, and even though no doubt he still thinks he can win, his doom is sure. Now, since he could not defeat God up in heaven, what did he do? He's come after his kids, God's kids, here on earth. We all know the story of how sin entered into the world. And so after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, after the fall of mankind, in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of all that darkness and sin, right, a rebellion, in the midst of that negative picture, here's what you need to know, that God came and God prophesied victory. God prophesied victory way back in Genesis chapter three, right after the fall of man. That's the kind of God we serve. He's like, nah, no way. And he prophesied victory in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. He said this to the serpent who deceived Eve. By the way, serpent, Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your, what's the word? And you shall bruise his, what's the word? Heal. If you're new to the Bible, that is the first prophecy in the Bible of the promised Savior, the promised Redeemer, the promised Messiah, who would come and offer redemption to fallen mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, this is so heavy on my heart. I so want this local church and all of our ministries, including our school across the street. I want all y'all to develop a biblical worldview, to see the world through the lens of the scripture. And in order to do that, you gotta understand the basic outline of uh, a biblical worldview. It's made up of four words. Number one, creation. Number two, the fall. Number three, redemption through Jesus Christ. And number four, he's coming back to restore all things. That is a biblical worldview. That is completely opposite and different from much of what we get in our culture. They have a different worldview. We choose, uh, we believe this is God's word. We choose to have the view that God has, and so we're talking about the Messiah, right? Genesis 3.15, God shows up in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the darkness, he prophesies victory, he promises a Messiah to come and offer redemption to the world. And in the battle for our redemption on the cross, here's what you need to know, that Satan bruised the heel of the Messiah. But even though Satan bruised the Messiah's heel, through that Messiah's death and through that Messiah's resurrection, he crushed the serpent's head. <laughs> Prophesied way back in Genesis 3.15. The bruise on Christ's heel was only temporary. He rose from the dead. He's seated right now at the right hand of the Father in victory. Jesus is alive and well, but the bruising of the serpent's head will be forever fatal. Why? Because the word of God says that Satan's days are numbered. He is a defeated foe. 
the good news, ladies and gentlemen, is that the enemy's authority over this world is only temporary. Jesus Christ one day will come back. And when he comes back, he's gonna bind the devil. He's gonna put him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then after one futile attempt to once again uh, stage a coup against the Lord, what is the Lord gonna do? He's going to grab that devil and he's going to throw him into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 10. And that devil's gonna be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, listen, listen. Christ Victory is your victory. We gotta learn to stand in the victory of our risen Lord. Christ's victory is your victory, and since he's in you, you have the power to be victorious over the enemy. And so let's get this whole spiritual warfare thing thing straight. Let's be biblical about it. The enemy is a defeated foe. And Christ, the same power, if if you know the Lord, the same power, that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you and inside of me. Listen, Christ won the war, but he hasn't come back yet, right? We're in the middle of point three and four, redemption and restoration in that biblical worldview. He hasn't come back yet, and so even though Christ won the war, there's still battles to be fought. In other words, as you've heard me say before, even though Christ crushed the serpent's uh, skull, his head, his tail still swishes. And so what do we have to do? We have to realize we're in a war, we're in uh, this battle. And where does the battle primarily take place? Right here in our minds. That leads you to your next point. If you are taking notes regarding spiritual warfare, second of all, Satan can't read our minds but he will attempt to influence our thoughts. Now, you may disagree with me on the first part of that. Um, I have heard of Christians saying that he can read our minds. I respectfully and wholeheartedly disagree. I don't believe he can read minds because I believe that the power to read minds is called omniscience and that is a divine attribute. In other words, there's a difference between the creator and his created beings and only the creator is infinite. You can't have two infinites. Infinite is infinite. There can only be one infinite. And so only the creator is infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, eternal, sovereign. Only God is omniscient, only God is all-knowing, and so because Lucifer is just a created being, I don't believe he can read our minds, but he will, I hope we all agree on this, he will attempt to influence our thoughts. It's what he does in spiritual warfare. We're not ignorant of the devil's devices, of his tactics. Now you hear sometimes people joke, right? There's an angel on one shoulder and there's a demon on another shoulder and the angel over here is quote unquote whispering, trying to get you to do right things, and the demon over here is quote unquote whispering and trying to get you uh, to do bad things. Now, um, that may seem like a fairy tale, but there's more truth to that than we realize. There's some truth to that analogy. Now, please hear me. I'm not talking about hearing literal voices. What I am saying is that you and I have an enemy, his name is Satan, 
The word Satan literally means adversary. That means he's coming against us and he's gonna try to stop you, he's gonna try to stop me from accomplishing God's will and one of his biggest tactics is trying to influence the way we think. Here's my biblical case for my line of thinking. We see this happen in the life of David. You keep reading the Bible, you see it happen in the life of Peter. You keep reading the Bible, you see it happen in the life of Ananias. If you remember, David, King David, arguably the greatest king in the history of Israel, what happened? The enemy came and incited David to take a census of Israel. Uh, First Chronicles 21.1 says, now Satan stood up against Israel Listen to this, and moved David to number Israel. Wow, the man after God's own heart, and Satan moved him to number Israel. What's going on there? What's going on there is that the enemy was able somehow, I can't explain it, I don't know how it all works, but he was able, on that day at least, to influence David's thoughts to do something contrary to God's will. Um, You keep reading the Bible, you see the same thing happen with Peter. Apparently the enemy came and incited Peter to resist Jesus from going to the cross. And so if you remember in the Gospels, what does Jesus do? Uh, Toward the end of his ministry, he actually tells the apostles, hey look, look, we're gonna go to Jerusalem and when we get to Jerusalem, the religious leaders who hate me, they're gonna condemn me to death Um, I'm gonna die, but three days later, I'm gonna rise from the dead. Pause. This is a great apologetic for why Christianity is true. Right here, right now. It's not in the notes, but I'm just gonna throw this in. How do we know Christianity is true? Well, there's lots of reasons why we know Christianity is true, but here's one big one. Our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ, he predicted and he accomplished his resurrection. He predicted, listen, the New Testament is a historically reliable document with the manuscript evidence is more, way more than any other ancient book from, from history. It's a, it's the, the, the New Testament is a historically reliable document and the New Testament, in the New Testament, as eyewitnesses are recording these things, what did the eyewitnesses say? They said that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, that's supernatural. You gotta come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is real. He's not a theory in a book. He's not pie in the sky, by and by. He's not a fantasy. He's a real historical person who predicted his resurrection and then actually died and actually accomplished his resurrection, which over 500 people, eyewitnesses, saw him alive after he had been dead. That is irrefutable evidence that Christianity is true. And so, we have Frank Turek coming in December, the the, the apologist, and one of the things he always says is, um, the reason some of you don't believe in Christianity is because you've never been talked into it. Listen, I'm trying to talk some of you into it, some of you who are skeptics, to weigh the evidence and come to a place where you give your life to Jesus Christ because he is absolutely real. Now we get back to the notes. All right, so, what happened? Peter hears Jesus saying, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and I'm gonna rise again three days. And what does Peter do? 
Peter, so embarrassing, takes Jesus to the side and begins to rebuke him and says, far be it from you, Lord. I can't wait to see how the chosen uh, has this scene uh, someday in the future. Far be it from you, Lord. You're not going to go to Jerusalem. You're not gonna die. And how did Jesus respond to Peter? Uh, quote, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Everybody look at me. For you are not mindful, this is where the battle takes place. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So apparently, Satan, at least on that day, was successful to influence the thoughts of Peter to try to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Not only that, you keep reading the Bible, you get to the book of Acts. And now you have a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they're in the church of Jerusalem. They decide to tell a lie about how much they sold a piece of property for. And Peter says to Ananias, quote, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, I have to clarify here, you know, we're a Calvary Chapel affiliated church. There's Calvary chapels all over the world. Um, this Calvary Chapel, and I don't know of any other Calvary Chapel that would disagree with this, but all Calvary chapels, here's where, where we, um, something we really believe in strongly. We do not believe that a born again Christian can be possessed by the devil or demons. Oppressed, yeah, that could happen. Possessed, absolutely not. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay, so no demon's gonna come in where the Holy Spirit is living. And so what are we talking about here? What we're talking about in all those situations with David and Peter and Ananias is that Satan somehow, explain it, I can't explain it, but Satan somehow influenced the thoughts of these human beings and they did something contrary to the will of God. As we seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the same enemy, his tactics haven't changed, and so he's gonna come at us the same way, and so what should we do? Well, we need to destroy those arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we need to take every thought captive, every thought captive, and make it obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. My dad served his country uh, for 22 years in the United States Air Force. He served for 22 years, and him and, his, and my mom decided to retire um, in South Tampa. And so they bought a house in 1969 when I was just three years old uh, there in South Tampa, just about four or five miles north of MacDill Air Force Base. Because my dad served his country, um, I was a dependent. That means that I could go on base as long as I had my ID card there at MacDill Air Force Base. By the way, I have to say, I, I really loved that whole life of growing up by the Air Force Base. We had so much fun. Um, if those of you who've been in the military, you know everything on base is so much cheaper than what's in town. And so, man, we would go to the bowling alley, we would go to the pool, we would go to the movies, we would go to the beach, we would play golf, we would go to the BX, we would watch the Thunderbirds perform, et cetera, et cetera. That was my life, a lot of my life, uh, growing 
growing up. I enjoyed that so much. I'm so grateful for a dad uh, who served his country. Uh, when I was 16 or 17 years old, I enjoyed it even more because now I could drive and now I could go by myself to the base. And so I'd jump in my car, I would drive south on Del Mabry, past Gandhi, to um, the main gate of MacDill there on Del Mabry Highway. I would stop, the airman was there, I would show my ID, and he would wave me through. Now, when I was a small kid, my memories of approaching MacDill Air Force Base, I remember a small guard shack and one airman, and maybe he had just a sidearm. But then 9-11 happened. And after 9-11, they completely restructured the main gate going into MacDill. And they made this thing like a fortress, like an impenetrable uh, fortress. They significantly beefed up the security there. And those um, airmen, now there's multiple airmen if you go to MacDill today, and they're not just carrying a sidearm, these guys have some serious weapons meant to intimidate anybody who's got you know, the wrong intentions. Why so much security? Well, obviously they don't want terrorists to infiltrate the base, especially when you consider that the headquarters of Central Command is right there uh, over at MacDill Air Force Base. Suffice it to say this, our military is very careful with who they let in. Now I said all that to say this, we should be just as careful we should have the same spirit of vigilance. We need to have the same attitude of awareness when it comes to what we allow into the gate of our minds. We should be vigilant, we should be aware, and we should be ready. Can you guys imagine if a truck filled with terrorists, armed terrorists, were to drive up to the main gate there at MacDill, and the airman standing at the guard shack said, Hey guys, come on in. You would say, that's crazy. But I submit to you this morning that it's just as crazy when we make a choice to allow harmful, destructive thoughts into the gate of our minds. You say, pastor, you sound really serious right now. I am serious. I've been doing this for a long time, and you know how many people allow stinking thinking to take control of their mind, and the next thing you know, they're spiritually apathetic, they're no longer attending church, and they're not even really following the Lord either. Some Christians have got to get to the place where they beef up the security around their minds. You say, how do you do that? Here's how you do it. You station the guard of God's word outside of your brain. <laughs> That's how you do it. This is what we gotta do. Listen, we're talking about sanctification process. We're talking about being conformed to the image of Christ. We're talking about being a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. If you wanna be successful in that endeavor, then you and I have gotta learn to station that guard right outside of our mind. The author of Hebrews said this, the word of God is alive. This book, ladies and gentlemen, is unlike any other book in the world. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, here it is. And it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
And so when we make that choice to meditate in the word of God every single day, the word of God judges our thoughts. The word of God stands as a guard outside the gate of our minds. Let's go back to the main text. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, can you guys shout out the word think? Think about these things, the Apostle Paul said. Now what if we used that verse right there to judge what we allowed into the gate of our minds? And so when a certain thought, right, comes driving up to the gate of our minds, and it stops, what if we develop this discipline where we come out and we stop that thought and we say, I'm gonna need to see some ID. And that thought gives us that ID metaphorically. And then we examine that thought. And if that thought violates any of the eight traits in Philippians 4, 8, what do we say? Turn around, you're not welcome in here. What if we did that? Man, I tell you what, it would really, uh, it, uh, um, it would really speed up the sanctification process in our lives. We could call this the gate of Philippians 4, 8. Now, I'm not a poet. This just came together this week. And what did I do? I just gave the opposite to the Greek words that Paul gave us in verse 8. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about that thought comes to the gate of our minds, and if that thought is false, if that thought is shameful, if that thought is unjust, hear this especially in our culture of technology, if that thought is impure, if that thought is ugly or offensive, slanderous, flawed, or dishonorable, we say, you need to turn around, you're not welcome in here. And if something else drives up to the gate of our minds, a disturbing memory, an irrational thought, thoughts that question the goodness of God, Thoughts that produce false guilt and shame. Do you guys understand there's a difference between conviction from the Holy Spirit and false guilt and shame from the enemy? Totally different. And so conviction of the Holy Spirit's a good thing. False guilt and shame is from the enemy. We gotta take that thought captive. Uh, thoughts uh, like social media pictures, tick-tock images, certain websites, certain YouTube videos, certain lyrics of a song, a certain TV show or movie. I wonder if somebody here needs to take Philippians 4.8, um, write it out and frame it and stick it right over your TV set. Now, if anybody's feeling conviction, listen, that's a good thing. Why, because you have a daddy in heaven who loves you as his son or his daughter. And if your little toddler's going up and getting ready to touch that, that stove that's hot, what are you gonna do? No, no, why, you love the kid, you don't want the kid to get hurt. Conviction from the Holy Spirit's a beautiful thing. So what do we gotta do when those thoughts come 
we say, uh-uh, you're not welcome, you need to turn around. And this kind of mental discipline, when we engage in this kind of discipline, we're fulfilling the command to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, as great as all that is, here's what you need to know. It's not enough. Because it's not enough just to take the thought captive. It's not enough just to take a harmful thought captive. We have to replace it with a helpful thought. And so, what do we allow into the gate of our minds? Well, Paul told us in Philippians 4.8, thoughts that are true, thoughts that are honorable, thoughts that are just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. What do we say? Like the airmen at MacDill Air Force Base, we say, come on in, welcome. Now, some people think this kind of teaching and preaching is limited. You know, you're gonna limit my freedom. No, listen, there are thousands of thoughts that we can welcome into the gate of our minds. Thousands and thousands of them that are gonna pass the test of Philippians 4.8. Listen, thoughts of faith, thoughts of family, thoughts of friends, and not just that, thoughts of fun, recreational things that we enjoy doing. The Bible says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 17, that our God has richly given us all things to enjoy. So don't think of God as some kind of cosmic killjoy. No, there's thousands of thoughts that you can welcome in to your minds. Speaking about family, did you guys know that my wife Stacy and I now have seven grandchildren? Seven grandchildren. It's like, how did that happen, right? And so can we see the first uh, photo there? And so these are, here's our grandkids with their pop. And so there's little Logan in the front. So Logan and Serafina and Benaya, they belong to Pastor Ethan and Megan. And then you have little Micah and Adeline. They belong to Angel and Mary. And um, we were having a good time that evening, some of you guys may be thinking, what in the world are you watching? Everybody's so fixated on the TV. Well, of course, we're watching the Bucks beat the Cowboys last Thursday night. It was amazing, which by the way, that game completely passes the Philippians 4-8 test, unless you're a Cowboys fan. Okay, okay, I'm just saying. I gotta be careful here. Self-control, right, through the Spirit. Let's get back in track here. All right, and so there's five, and, and, and someone says, well, you said there's seven. Well, Megan's due in December, so we're looking forward to meeting little baby Jones, and then I don't know if you heard or not, but Mandy and Desio, so we have Megan, Mandy, and Mary, and so Mandy and Desio uh, are welcoming in little Beatrice, if we could see the next photo. Beatrice was just born exactly one week ago, so she's one week old, seven pounds, I'm a guy, I gotta read this, I don't have it memorized. <laughs> seven pounds, 19 and a half inches, she was born Sunday evening, and Mandy and Desio and all of us are absolutely thrilled. Let me ask you a question, do you think little Beatrice passes the Philippians 4-8 test? All day long, <laughs> all day long. Listen, there's thousands and thousands of thoughts that we can welcome into 
our minds that are good and wholesome and glorify and honor the Lord. But the top two thoughts that rank above all the others are thoughts about God and his word. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me. God and his word are always true and always honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. So in closing, if you wanna overcome anxiety, you gotta immerse yourself with thoughts about God. Look at the promise of the Lord's word. Isaiah 26, three. You will keep in perfect, what's the word there? See that? You want peace in your life? You will keep in perfect peace all who trust you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. And then, not just the Lord, but next slide, the Lord's word, great peace have those who love your law, love the word of God, and nothing causes them to stumble. And so just like those who engage in meaningful prayer experience the peace of God, so those who engage in meaningful meditation on God's word also experience the peace of God. And listen, 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 that peace of God, listen, it pushes the anxiety away. <laughs>